In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of God's Holy Spirit. Amen. As Brian so gently, so kindly said in his introduction, um, I'm currently serving uh, at St. Mark's Parish in Warren, nine mile in Ryan kind of area. First time I've ever been on the east side. Um, I thought I had to renew my passport, you know. <laughs> But they're really nice folks on, on the east side. And, uh, uh, we're really so parochial, isn't it? Anyway, um, I've had the honor and the pleasure of, uh, of uh, preaching here at Greenfield a number of times, and it's wonderful to be back. Um, I think today I'm going to be a little more theological than I have been in the past. And I want to talk about our understanding of why there ever was a Christmas in the first place. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago? Now, the answer to this question that we were all brought up with, uh, Catholics and uh, Reformed Christians alike, goes back about 1,000 years to the time of an Englishman, Anselm, the Bishop of Canterbury. Anselm in the 11th century came up with the satisfaction theory of atonement. Now, this was later worked on a little bit by a Dominican friar in the 13th century called Thomas Aquinas, and then given its definitive reformed version by John Calvin in the 16th century. Now, I'm not going to go into any of the details, uh, the little nuances between these three versions of atonement theology, but we can simply say that all three of them agree that Christmas was plan B. Christmas was plan B in the sense that God's original plan, plan A, didn't work. You know, God created the universe and populated it with human beings. Uh, depending on your reading of Scripture, this took either six days or 14.4 billion years, but we won't get into that. But unfortunately, all accounts say that human beings re rebelled against God and sin entered the world. And the story of this fall as we call it, is in the book of Genesis. There was a radical falling out between God and God's creation. There was need for atonement. Atonement, a word made up of uh, three individual words, at one meant. Atonement, to bring together back into one, to restore the relationship between God and humanity. And to do this, God had plan B. Atonement was achieved on the first Christmas when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human nature and was born in Bethlehem. The divine and the human were reunited. Atonement happened. We know this man, this God-man, as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Christians for the last thousand years, as I said, have been living with this understanding of Christmas as plan B. But all along, there had been this alternative theology, a theology that back before 
the 16th century, Rome never declared as a heresy. And Rome, as we know, was constantly on the lookout for heresies. And, but this, this alternative theology was never, it was never declared wrong. It's been quietly whispered. And it says that Christmas had always been in plan A. God, all along, intended to become human even if the fall never happened. And the 13th century theologian who originated this idea was a Scottish Franciscan called John Duns Scotus. So many of these world's problems have been caused because Scotsmen and Englishmen couldn't agree with each other. Well, you might say, this is nice, you know, God intended to become human all along. Uh, gives me a warm feeling, but what does this discussion of 13th century theology have got to do with today, with the problems of our 21st century world? It's very interesting. Thank you, Deacon, but it's hardly very important. Well, I'm going to try and suggest that it is very important. And I'm inspired by a, uh, an American Franciscan priest living today called Father Richard Rohr, who thinks that it's very important that we understand that God always intended to become human. It has everything to do, this understanding has everything to do with the crisis that we see in religion that's affecting nearly all of the mainline Christian churches. And it comes down to this, according to Richard Rohr, we've been preaching an angry God, and we've been doing it for too long. We've been preaching a medieval God of justice when we should have been preaching a much more ancient Johannine God of love. Now, of course, our God is a God of justice, but God's justice is restorative rather than retributive. Let me explain that this way. Our Hebrew ancestors, when they considered God as a judge, they thought of themselves as plaintiffs in a civil case. They saw the judge as one who would give them justice. They were looking for restorative justice. Whereas we tend to look upon ourselves when we consider God as judge as the defendants in a criminal trial. We're waiting for the, hand, the heavy hand to fall on us, and that's retributive justice. And much of our preaching is that Jesus took that heavy hand of God instead of us. Now, of course, victims require justice, but victims are not entitled to a pound of flesh. There must be reconciliation, even forgiveness, in this world of ours. So according to Christmas as Plan B, the reason for God becoming human in the person of Jesus was in order to satisfy the infinite offense of Adam against the infinite majesty of God. And the problem with that is it paints a rather dismal picture of God the Father. 
Was God incapable of forgiving humanity without Jesus' blood sacrifice? Kind of makes the death of Jesus, as somebody once shockingly put it, as divine child abuse. You know, if the only reason Jesus was born was to suffer and die, then we can cut the New Testament right down to a three-by-five card. We can fast-forward right to the last three days of Jesus' life, maybe even down to the last three hours of Jesus' life. But of course, then we would cut out everything that Jesus taught about the God of love, the God who taught the, the teachings that Jesus gave us about love of God and love of neighbor. We'd miss out about the Beatitudes and the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son and all those wonderful and warming stories. Richard Rohr likes to sum up his thought in that Jesus did not come to change God's opinion about humanity. Jesus gave, came to change humanity's opinion of God. Jesus said, don't call him Yahweh Sabaoth. Don't call him the God of thunder and lightning. Call him Abba. Abba, of course, we know is an Aramaic word, the affectionate word a child uses for their loving father. Abba really translates as daddy. Jesus said, call him daddy because he loves you as a loving father. Jesus became human so that God could love us as a human, with a human heart. God, love is the dominant force in the universe and the dominant need in the world today. I once worked for a pastor who said, there's far too much talk about love, 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 that wishy-washy stuff. There are rules that need to be obeyed. He was a canon lawyer, so I can forgive him. Um, well, I'm all for rules and laws. You know, we'd be in chaos without them. You know, when I came to this country, I had to learn that uh, the rule of the road was you drive on the right-hand side, not on the left. We all need to do that or, you know, it's disaster. Rules and laws are needed. But the law of love is supreme. The Gospel, the New Testament reading we just heard talked on and on about how God is love. And even St. Paul, that very doer, almost Scottish kind of gentleman, uh, reaffirmed that three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, unfortunately, love is an ambiguous word in the English language. We use it for so many different things. I might say, I love haagen coffee ice cream. I love my wife. I love the cat. I love Monday night football. I, I love a cold drink on a hot day. All these uses of love for so many different things. What is the kind of love that Jesus says we must have for one another. What's, the Greek word is agape. What is agape love in everyday language? Well, I've got to tell you the best definition 
of agape love that I ever came across wasn't in a book of theology or even psychology. They didn't teach it in the seminary. I saw it on a poster in a Stroh's ice cream store. <laughs> if ice cream keeps coming up here. Yeah. And the poster said quite simply, love is when someone else's needs are more important to you than your own. Love is when someone else's needs are more important to you than your own. Love is radical unselfishness. Love is the ability to take yourself out of the middle of your own life and put other people there instead. It's not wishy-washy. It's not feel good. It's very difficult. And only Jesus could do it 24-7. But we're all of us called to, to practice that kind of agape love. Primarily because it's the lifestyle of heaven. You know, if heaven were a golf course, and most Scotsmen believe that it is, <laughs> then the thing to do in this life would be to learn how to play golf. Not to be a, become a champion, because the champions at the lifestyle of heaven are the saints. You know, the Mother Teresas, the, the wonderful people who live love in a, to an impossible for us extent. No, no, we'd all have to just learn how to play the game well enough not to embarrass ourselves. And if someone came to the gates of heaven totally selfish, you know, a heart like a cold, dark cinder with not a scrap of the ability of unselfishness in them, they would see how people in heaven treated each other. And they would know they wouldn't fit in. They would know it. The angel wouldn't have to say, you can't come in because you're not a nice person. They would say to themselves quite simply, I'm going to get to hell out of here. I'll fit in there better. Because hell is selfishness and heaven is love. And we're all of us called to practice that lifestyle a little bit. And, you know, some of my, uh, my more traditionalist friends will say, what about sin, though? What, what, shouldn't we be terrified for our sins and, and, and desperate to do something of the sins of the, about the sins of the world? But, you know, our God has a solution for our sins. Our God forgives them. If we have sinned, and we ask his forgiveness, it is granted. That's God's solution for sinfulness. And you can come to death's door and have your sins forgiven, but a lifetime of acts of unselfish love left undone, I'm not sure what even an infinite God, an all-powerful God can do about that. So there we are. We have to preach and practice love of God and love of neighbor. Of course, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. My great friend, Peter Moore, has been preaching a God of love from this pulpit for years. 
and you've been listening to him attentively, and I see its fruits in all of the outreach, the love you have for one another, and the, you, the love you have for this world. So I guess it just remains for me to thank you for letting me rant and rave. <laughs> thank you for indulging me. I feel a little better already.